Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you know it's our mission to bring you a lot of different perspectives on regenerative agriculture, from systems and technologies to soil and human health. And today is just another great example of connecting those dots and helping us to understand how the food we grow impacts not only you, the grower, but the businesses and communities where our food is enjoyed. Our guest today is Chef Rick Bayless whose highly rated public television series, Mexico, One Plate at a Time, is broadcast coast to coast, and his nine cookbooks have earned multiple high-profile accolades. Located in Chicago, Rick's Frontera Grill and Topolobampo have each received the Outstanding Restaurant of the Year designation from the James Beard Foundation. Chef Rick says it best when he says, we don't preach to anybody. First, we're going to seduce them with flavor. And then when they say how amazing these flavors are, that's where we open up the conversation about the farmers we work with and how the food is grown. Chef Bayless is so passionate about the food he prepares and serves that he has literally put his money where his mouth is and worked with farmers to grow full-flavored ingredients that aren't just window dressing. It's a great conversation, so let's just jump right in. Welcome to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast, and I am truly honored to be joined today by Chef Rick Bayless. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, this is incredible. What we love to do is just have folks tell us their story, you know, a little bit about yourself and and how you got started and got you where you are today, but most importantly, why you do what you do. Well, it's a long story, so I'm going to just hit some of the high points. Otherwise, uh, we won't have any time for the to get into the real questions of why we're meeting today. Um, but I was raised in a restaurant family in Oklahoma City, fell in love with, uh, with studying other cultures, but um, primarily Mexico. Uh, got to go there when I was 14, and all I can really say is that it, when I got to Mexico City, I felt like I had gotten home. And um, somehow I wanted to make that part of my life. Um, I ended up studying Spanish language, literature, and Latin American studies when I was in college. Then just I, I thought I was going to end up with a life in academics, went to graduate school in anthropology and linguistics. Um, and then uh, when I was working on my dissertation for my PhD, my lots of things in my life changed all at one time time. And I had been cooking all the way through because that's kind of what I knew how to do. I'd even opened a little catering business um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was going to graduate school. And um, I had started teaching some cooking classes. And so that I would have called my avocation. Well, I um, ended up making it my vocation. My wife and I had the opportunity. Um, I was doing all kinds of different 
classes and stuff like that and, and cooking a lot of different kinds of food. Um, but uh, at one point I was, I had the opportunity to refocus and really focus on Mexico and the food of Mexico, but I didn't really, I had gone to school there briefly, but I hadn't really, I didn't really know very much, but because I had gone there and I was fluent in Spanish, everybody thought, oh, well, he should be teaching Mexican cooking. So I did a lot of cramming in books, but then um, I had this great opportunity to do a, a, a series for uh, the local public television station on the food of Mexico. That's a really long story. So let's just say it happened because I don't want to have to get into the details of why that happened. But um, it took me back to Mexico and really refocused me. And I, I loved that. My wife and I moved to Mexico for five years and, um, and wrote our first cookbook, which is called Authentic Mexican, that came out in 1987. And it came out um, in... Uh, this is all true, but it's not anything that you could ever have planned, but it came out on the day that we opened our first restaurant, um, Frontera Grill in 1987. Um, and then, um, I really was, um, I, I, I wanted to do a restaurant because everybody in the States at that time, uh, thought that Mexican food was what you could get, um, mostly at franchise kind of places. And that's not what Mexican food is all about. And it's a very vast cuisine. And I wanted to do a restaurant that could actually represent that. But um, we opened in 87. The first customers walked in the door. They looked at the menu. They put the menus down. They got up. They said, this has absolutely nothing to do with Mexican food. You will be out of business in six months. <laughs> and um, I am glad after 34 years, I can say that uh, we haven't yet gone out of business. And to that restaurant, we have added three more all on the same block. And it's kind of a weird way to do it. But I, I, you can tell I don't like to commute, right? And so I can go to one place for work, and I stay there. Um, but in, in the development of I, I was always really interested in the way that culture expresses itself. And when I was in graduate school, I did that through language. But once I turned my focus back to food, I really wanted to talk about how a culture expresses itself in terms of its food. And of course, all you have to do is scratch the surface and you know that the places with the best local agriculture are the places that have the most um, uh, most developed cuisines and are and the people spend more time cooking and all of that. So there's a direct relationship between good agriculture and good local agriculture and the and the appreciation of food and how how much a part of life that really is and how that expresses not only just the culture but the physical culture as well the 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 land uh, of a of a region and um, I got super into to working on uh, local agriculture. When we opened Frontera in 1987, there was not a single farmer's market in the city of Chicago. Uh, now there are 60 in Chicago, but that's happened over that 34 year period. And um, so I thought there's no way I can do a great restaurant. I, I love being in Chicago because, um, you know, we're the first large city, largest large city in the United States to have a population that is a third African-American, a third Latino and a third white. 
Um, um, so it wasn't quite those proportions when we opened in 87, but there was this really big and vibrant um, Latino community here. And I, I loved being part of that and, and being able to shine a light on the kind of ingredients that were available through our local um, Latino markets. And the fact that um, we have more tortillas in Chicago, cooking corn from its natural state and grinding it into masa for making tortillas and a thousand other things um, than any other city in the United States. And we, we have this vibrant culture that surrounds that and really loves it. So I knew we had that kind of a foundation, but what was really important to me was that um, we needed to start getting more local agriculture. Yes, the tortillerias were working with local corn, but it wasn't necessarily in those days non-GMO corn, and um, it didn't it didn't give me enough. And so I started working with farms. Um, well, first of all, it was impossible to find farms. <laughs> it was like you had to drive all around outside of the greater Chicago. Chicago area to really find any farms back then. But my wife and I were really dedicated to starting to develop this, this local agricultural economy. And um, over the years, we've done it. I mean, I could talk on for hours on how we did that and how hard it was and all that sort of stuff. But um, we, uh, I, I, I didn't get into, I got into it from the local side. I didn't get into it from the organic side. Um, and the, it was, uh, I, I just noted that as through the years as we developed um, a small little group of farms that delivered to us that the organic farmers were the people that, that gave us the best stuff. And it wasn't necessarily because you could tell a difference in taste, it's just that they took care of their products in a better way. And so they taught me, number one, that if, if you have to, if you're really a dirt farmer and you are working on creating really healthy soil for the plants to grow in, then the products of those plants are precious gems to you and you treat them like that. Whereas the people that were working in uh, a non-regenerative way um, were, they were just putting stuff in. It was like a, you know, inputs and then take something out and they weren't treating things in the same way. Um, and I also, um, I also realized how important it was to have direct contact between the farmers and our cooks, um, which you can't, if you order from one of the big companies that's a one-stop shop, you're never going to get that direct relationship. Mm -hmm. And what I found out is that as the farmers delivered stuff to us, they told us about the hailstorm they had, the drought, or the oh, abundance of water that was that had two fields uh, of, of theirs underwater, and that they were probably going to lose those crops. And suddenly, you understand uh, you, you understand nourishing yourself in a very different way when you get to those kinds of things. And um, so, I thought to myself, I never want to have a restaurant that doesn't buy directly from the farmers, so that the farmers can educate us on what we really need to know about what it's like to to grow in the area that we're working with, even full, fully aware that you can buy strawberries in January if you want to in this town, but that's not this, what we wanted to have on our menu. I think that has, I know that was really long and I apologize if it was oh, too no, long. Was I kind of had to get from uh, being a, a kid in a restaurant that I loved in Oklahoma City that made barbecue to the guy that I am today here in Chicago. 
that is a fascinating journey. And I, like you said, I'm sure there's a lot more and, and certainly we'll, we'll direct people to your books and websites and, and those kind of things. But what, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I think that's a, I think that's really interesting. We've never heard that before on the podcast, but when people have that soil health focus, they appreciate their produce more or their, the crops that they're growing more or their livestock more. I mean, that's just, you're exactly right. And I, I don't know why we haven't thought of that before, but we appreciate it more because we know the work that went in to do the soil health practices correctly, or right. we appreciate it because we're wanting it to return and, and regenerate the soil even better for the next growing cycle. So absolutely That's a fascinating you, point. you can't you just don't go down to the store and buy all the inputs and just throw them on the soil and and say okay that's as good as it can get because you actually have to understand the the the, the whole system, system. <laughs> it's it's like this very complex system and that's the thing that i found the most educational and inspiring so when you're working with all these farmers directly versus, let's say, a, a large uh, Cisco or somebody like that that, that services a, a wholesale broker, um, that's a lot of extra work for you. I mean, you, you work with hundreds, I would assume, of quote-unquote vendor farmers uh, to supply with no, different we schedules. Don't. How, how, do you, how do you balance that? Because we, a lot of restaurants are afraid of that. We don't work with a lot of different ones. We work with uh, 10 something okay. like that it's it to buy to buy fifteen dollars worth of something from a farmer is ridiculous to me it's like you get your farmers and you you become a part of what they're growing and so you need you to have those scale to supply to you then absolutely and that's the other thing that we had a lot of trouble with in the beginning was to get the the we i, I wanted to grow farms <laughs> um not just the products i wanted to grow the farms and so many of them i mean in, in and i respect that there are some of the farmers that we worked with that were very happy doing what i would call a boutique farm Mm -hmm. or they produce a certain amount and maybe it's just the right amount for um, a farm stand. And that's, they're really super happy with that. And maybe that supplies them with enough money to get by. Maybe they have other income coming from other things, who knows, but I wanted to get the farmers who wanted to grow their farms. And so that they could actually produce enough for us. And so I, I said that I wanted my menu not to have the window dressing from a local farm because that's super easy to do where you put a tomato or a summer squash or some herbs on a plate and call it local cooking where 90% of the plate actually came from, uh, from a commodity, from commodity stuff that you bought off the market. Um, so I wanted to, I always called it the, the potatoes, carrots, and onions cuisine. I wanted all of that stuff to come from local farms because that's when I said, I knew that we were really making a dent in real local agriculture culture. And um, I, I, so I worked very hard to help to develop uh, those kinds of farms. And that's what led to the Frontier Farmer Foundation. And that was uh, a number of years in, in coming to fruition, but it actually started with one farmer bringing some spinach into me and saying, but he brought it in February, you have to understand this. And he brought fresh spinach to me. And I said, oh my God, where do you, it, this was a farm in Southern Wisconsin. And I said, what, where in 
the world are you growing this? Do you have a greenhouse? He said, no, I just have an unheated hoop house, but I know this variety of spinach that can tolerate a light freeze. And he had a tall high, high tunnel. So it trapped a fair amount of uh, sunlight in it and warmed it up during the day. And then he would get a light freeze at night. But what that did to the spinach is the spinach reacts to that light freeze and produces more sugar because sugar will protect the spinach from freezing solid. And so it was the sweetest spinach, the best spinach I've ever had in my entire life. And I said, I want, I said, don't tell another chef in town about this stuff. I want it all. Give it to me. I want this local spinach in the middle of the winter. Um, he said, I, you plant it basically in November and then you start harvesting it a little bit at a time in January, February, March. Okay. So I said, well, put another hoop house in. And he said, oh, I don't have money for that. Take me five years to get the money together to do another hoop house. And I said, what if we lent you the money for that hoop house and you paid us back in spinach? And so that started the whole idea. And so we set aside some of our, our um, cash flow in the restaurant to as a, as a fund to, uh, against which uh, farmers could uh, borrow, but they had to pay it back in a year so that we could give it to another farmer and we could start to build this local agricultural economy. And um, so he, he started us off with that. And then it grew, and there it was. It was a ten thousand dollar fund, and so it it was getting liquidated every year, and then repeat paid back and everything. And um, I had a windfall of money one year, and I said, I'm going to use this money to put into uh, to starting this as a five hundred one c three not for profit. And we started the Frontera Farmer Foundation, and we've given away almost three million dollars in grants over the years um, to small family farms in the Midwest. We, anybody in the Midwest, it's a five-state region, um, can apply for a grant. And lots of them have nothing to do with our restaurant. But the whole idea is we want to grow these family farms and we want to get them up to the size that they can actually be sustainable because we saw too many of them going out of business because they didn't have the money to get the right equipment to get more profitable or, or productive. And so that's where we, we came with the Frontera Farmer Foundation all because of your passion for some sweet spinach. It was. All because I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a real flavor guy. I, I really am. Um, it's all about, it's not about for me, the concept of what goes into the, the food. It's the food itself. So if you're, um, we, we sort of uh, lovingly call them a hippie, hippie farmers, um, because there are sometimes these hippie farmers that are sort of back to nature. Um, and yes, they're doing regenerative agriculture to a certain degree, but it's like, they're not, they're not following through with the whole program. And if they, if you bring me, you know, stuff that's, that's in bad shape because you don't know how or when to harvest it, um, then I'm not going to be your partner because um, for me, it all has to do with the beauty of, of the food that, that we are able to put on the plates because our, our mantra in our restaurant is we don't preach to anybody. First of all, we have to seduce them with flavor. And if they eat a dish and they are like, oh my God, this is so good. I'm open to hearing 
how this is so good. Cause I like, I, people say I eat in a lot of restaurants and I don't taste anything this good. So man, we can start right on the, down the path about one of the farmers that produced what you have on your plate there. And like our relationship with them as partners in our restaurant, that's a really important thing for us. And so it, we have seduced them with the flavor, which means that now they're open to hearing all the stuff. If we advertise ourselves as a farm to table restaurant or as an organic restaurant, it, we're putting the wrong emphasis in my way of thinking. All restaurants should be farm to table restaurants as far as I'm concerned, no matter what cuisine it is that they're doing. And everybody should be supporting regenerative agriculture. So um, it doesn't that that maybe mean different things to different people, whether you're a certified organic person or like some of the people I know super into biodynamics. Well, I mean, that's that's another thing, you know, and so it's like I don't care what it is as long as it's regenerative. Correct. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. And I, you hit on some amazing points there. And when we started our grass-fed beef business on our farm, one of the things I said is, I have had a lot of grass-fed beef in my life that tastes like crap. Okay. Yeah. It's lean. It's tough. It's, it, you know, they just don't well marble it. They, they don't finish out the animal right because they're not managing right. They don't have the energy density that they need to make it happen. So I said to my wife, I said, we're not going to raise, you know, substandard beef because we lead first to a taste. We say it tastes great. And then you go with all the health benefits and, and all that stuff. So I, mm -hmm. I love that seduce them with flavor. So as farmers, our job is we have to create beautiful products that taste great, that allows you to work with it so that then you're able. And as a partnership together, we're, we're getting those votes right from the consumer. Yeah. They are voting when they buy it at your restaurant at, you know, featuring, our food, as an example, you know, they're voting for regenerative agriculture that way. And yeah. that's, that's, that's incredible. And you also mentioned how sometimes some restaurants will put a couple little things on the side and call it farm to table. We call that greenwashing in our business. Yeah, you know, right. people say, oh, well, I planted a cover crop. Well, it was on half their acres and it was one species and they did it once in two years. Or, you know, right. and organics gotten that way too, to where the, 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 the hippie farming style is been replaced by just input changes, right? Yeah, it's just not input a philosophy. Changes. It's just an input right. change. No, and, and that's, all that greenwashing just makes me disgusted. Yeah, I, I the, the the USDA certified organic stuff. There's so many. I mean, it's better than nothing. True, <laughs> but it's it's. It, I don't it, know. You got watered it, down to little little of something, right? <laughs> it just changed the inputs is a good way of putting it because right. that that really it feels like just conventional 
I, I, I hate the word conventional agriculture to refer to something that is so not conventional, but anyway, we call it that. But it's like doing conventional agriculture with different inputs and, and keeping records of it all. But I, I feel like that, that's why I kind of like the, the sort of the general approach of biodynamics, because it's that you should have a microcosm of the way the world works on your farm. And we have this tiny little production garden behind our house. It's a thousand square feet but we even um, believe that we should have livestock on that too, just to create the whole, the, 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 that microcosm of how the world works. So we've got right. some chickens, we've got some bees, you know, and so it gives us the opportunity to feel like that we are participating in something bigger. And, and uh, we try to create beautiful soil that can then produce the stuff that we, some of the stuff that we serve in our restaurant. Well, that is awesome. So one of my questions was going to be for you is, you know, are people asking you for better food or are you leading them to better food? And I, I really think you kind of answered that with the you seduce them with flavor, but you've probably still got people that are coming to your restaurants and asking for better food today, correct? No, I don't think we've ever had anybody ask for that. Okay, so you're, no, you're I mean, you're they, a lot of, a lot of our, our guests come because they know that we're dedicated to all that stuff. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of outspoken, so people yeah. know. And, you know, we have a section of our menu that our guests get that says where our food comes from. And so we list all these farms and and uh, ranches and stuff like that um, that that go together to create the food that we do. And we don't work with any of the big providers. And so we actually have to, we have to scrounge for our food. <laughs> and it's very different than the one-stop shopping. So it has gotten better since 1987 when you first started this working with, you know, trying to get locally sourced farms and stuff, but is it still a challenge for you to get locally uh, produced food for you to serve in your restaurants or? I, I can't answer that today just because we're just, we're trying to rebuild everything after COVID. We were devastated. Uh, everything was devastated. And we've had like one of our, uh, the guy that was producing all of our pork and chickens, in the middle of the pandemic said he was cutting out his chicken, um, all of his chicken thing. And he supplied us with every piece of chicken that we have used in our restaurant for over 20 years. And he, he, he couldn't, couldn't sustain that side of his business. So now, I mean, we're working with this really beautiful heritage breed stuff, but it comes from Northern Arkansas and that's not close enough for me, but it's like, we, we are a high volume restaurant. And so it's not like, a small production can, I mean, and we grew, you have to understand that, that the reason that the this one farmer um, stopping doing chicken is so uh, such a painful thing for us is because he came to us as a pork farmer at a time when we had another pork farmer. And I really liked his philosophy and I said, why don't we do chickens together? <laughs> and he had never done chickens before. And working with him over a number of years, we helped him refine that whole thing and turn it into a, a really amazing production. And he became the second larger, largest pastured poultry farm in the country. And now it's gone. <laughs> so that's the, I, I will say that to answer, to go back to your question, mm -hmm. um, I, I have no idea. We're, we're just trying to rebuild everything right now. And I think it's probably going to take us a couple of years to rebuild it because so many people have changed the way that they do stuff. Um, 
and basically they either are doing less or they're not delivering anymore or you know whatever i mean labor is just in such short supply i mean we 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 have parts of our restaurant that aren't open because we can't find a, the the labor pool to actually have enough staff to do that and so there's a lot of struggles right now and um, ask me that question in two years <laughs> so when you, with your foundation then are you are you actively looking for another poultry producer and you'd say, Hey, we'll partner with you to help get to the scale that we need. Or how, how does that, how do you find the farmers that, that you help with the foundation? Well, um, the first thing that, Oh no, that's all by application to answer that directly. Well, they, they just, uh, they come to you and, and then you see if we that's put a out, we put you. out applications, yeah. um, uh, a call for applications. And then, um, those come in, we have a, a board of directors that does all of the, the work on those, um, because it to be a, a, a full not-for-profit it can't have anything to do with our restaurant itself so everybody that's on the board um, is not connected with our restaurant at all and they um, they meet and they decide who is going to get these grants and so and they have no idea who we buy from or anything like that so it no it, there's no relationship between the foundation and us so I that what happens in uh, a restaurant situation is that first First, we have to scrounge and find out who can supply us with some some chickens now that's um, that meets all of our criteria, um, even though it's not a local product. It's, I mean, you you can't call Northern Arkansas a local product from Chicago. I, they tried to convince us it was um, just because we're sort of like. <laughs> one state away or something but where anyway i i didn't buy it um but so first of all we had to work to find something because we weren't given that many weeks before the old poultry was going to um to run out um but we work with uh, one local group here that um has a they they do a lot of wholesale stuff but they also have a retail outlet uh, called local foods and um so we quick went to local foods and said okay they've got their fingers on the pulse of a lot of stuff going on here and um, because they're trying to they they, they do do a lot of uh, we, we buy I mean they're one of our suppliers um, and they work as brokers for a lot of uh, uh, smaller or groups so um, they helped us find this person so that we are this company so that we could get going have we finished that no but we've covered our you know what's <laughs> there you go. But uh, no, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, it, you know, the commodity food system is easy, right? It, it's it's easy for easy. the farmer to sell into. It's easy for the restaurateur to purchase from. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's the easy button. Yeah. But, you know, the problem is, is you're not getting that, that food that's going to seduce the customer to come back and, and, right. and have that relationship. And then the problem for us, the farmer, is we're getting 13 to 14 cents of that food dollar. Yeah. that you're spending you know right. there's there's 80 86 cents that's just gone in 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 the middle so uh convenience has its price right for both of us really so that's that's a fascinating thing and and i can understand you know you talked a little bit about covid we've got the labor uh, shortages now you had you know several several months that we were down what what are some of the things that if you if your crystal ball isn't too foggy what are some of the things that you've seen that's happened that's that's kind of reset the the uh, food business as a result of COVID. What do you think is going to stay after post COVID here? 
Well, we're, we're struggling a lot. Um, one of the things that we did along the way is a bunch of uh, chefs got together with um, several people that were movers and shakers in Chicago. And we founded the Green City Market, which was uh, independent from the Chicago, the, the up and coming Chicago um, uh, farmers markets. Um, and the farmers markets in Chicago didn't have to, to sell there. You didn't have to be selling your own product. You could be, you, in some cases, just buying stuff off the wholesale market and selling it in the in the farmers markets. Um, and I, I won't say that everybody was doing that by any means, because a number of people that we buy from were, are in those those wonderful farmers markets. And Chicago got fresh produce into a lot of places that there was no no good fresh produce available. So um, I'm not complaining about that. I would do the same thing. But um, we wanted an independent market, and we wanted one that was an education educational had an educational focus and the Chicago um, uh, markets don't have that educational push so we started the green city market which is juried um, and you have to be moving you have to every year you have to be taking steps toward greater sustainability to stay in that in that group okay and um, it's a really well-run organization and there's chefs doing demos and you can do walks with people that are very knowledgeable about the the ingredients that are being sold so you can get a class if you want to while you're there about what to do with those the produce and so forth it's a it's a really it's a big and well-run market um, but right now after covid um, it's like all the chefs have stopped buying from the local stuff because there's too much pressure on our food costs and so lots of people are like i just can't pay that money right now until i build my business back and so um, it's it's been really hot top. So we had um, a, a get together with a bunch of chefs uh, about uh, four, a month ago and just talked about, you know, the need to to get chefs again, not the people like me that are, are the diehards that are always out there saying, buy local, buy local. It's not people like me, but um, the chefs, they're sort of like in a lot of the neighborhood restaurants that are doing some really nice stuff. But um, right now they're just scared to death that they're going to go out of business. And so they don't buy the stuff that perhaps is a little bit more expensive because they're afraid to raise their prices. And, you know, there's just a major, major pressure on economics right now in the restaurant business. So so um, we're starting to work on how to get those to get those those chefs back in the fold, and um, so we're working on that kind of thing. But again, I'm I think it's going to be a slow build, but I think we'll get it back. It's just that we have to really work on it. And I have to say that what, like one of our farmers, um, when he he pivoted right away to doing um, this really cool thing for to for it's like kind of like a CSA but you can actually buy by the pound. You don't have to just take whatever they give you. And he represents several farms in his area. And so he just sends it out. You, you tell him what he wants and he drives it into Chicago and to several places where you can pick up. And he's so, he had, and it's hard to say this uh, in real life, but he had the best year he's ever had during COVID because he found all these people cooking at home and he was able to charge a little bit more for it for the convenience of give, you know letting them buy by the pound or whatever. And um, so he's not sure he wants to go back to selling to restaurants. And so we, we also got to get the, the farmers to be part of the equation again. So chefs and farmers, I still think that you can't have great restaurants if you don't have great local agriculture. 
So that's our that's our goal. And that, that's interesting. I mean, we saw that same shift in our business. It's direct to consumer is primarily what we've always focused on. And, you know, fortunately, last year was a great year for us, but it was because we already had a home delivery model in place. Right. That's exactly. just, that's not, that's just good luck. Not, you know, not, not great, great uh, planning, but uh, you know, and that, I think that's changed and, and looking at how people, you know, are, are eating uh, and not wanting to go out or, or those kind of things. They've had a year of learning how to order online or order takeout right. and those kind of things. So I think, you know, I think a lot of that, some of it's going to stick, but there's also a lot of people this summer have just been wanting to get out again, right? So <laughs> it's it's good to get out. So uh, talk to us about, you know, you, you mentioned the, the local in, in regards to, especially with the, the Mexican cuisine and having that, that the farmer integration there. What are, what are some of the other, if you will, unintended benefits or, or surprises that you've seen because of your, your laser focus on the local food ingredients and everything that you've built around to make that work with the foundation and, and, and purchasing, what are, what are some things that have, that have happened out of that now after, you know, 30 some years of that, of that focus? Well, number one, we have better better food in Chicago and the restaurants. Remember that um, the Chicago's reputation as a restaurant town was very much about uh, steakhouses, and that was all commodity beef. Mm-hmm. I mean, good quality commodity beef. I'm not complaining about it, but it certainly wasn't buying beef from you guys, okay, <laughs> to, to go into those steakhouses. And so... Um, um, I will say that when we opened Frontera, was we were right on the beginning of that wave of um, chef-owned restaurants. There were only like a, a hand, small handful of chef-owned restaurants in all of Chicago when we opened, and uh, that that has completely changed now. That there's lots of chefs that own restaurants, and um, that that's almost what you kind of expect if it's a good restaurant. And um, I think that we would not have attracted that many people to stay in Chicago if we didn't have good food, I mean, good ingredients to work with here. And um, we not only have good people that are bringing in exotic stuff from uh, far away, because that's that's something that's also going to grow up around um, a really vibrant restaurant uh, culture. But we also have these people who have made their reputation buying from local farms. And I think that that wouldn't have been possible before. I mean, we had to first build the system and now we have to kind of rebuild the system, but that's, that's our, our goal is to rebuild it because we, we needed, uh, I mean, it's not bad that we're rebuilding it because um, we have a new generation of chefs out there that don't understand what it was like to be in Chicago without any farmer's markets <laughs> and um, that there was just none of that stuff available. So I feel like that that's an, um, we are now, we are a better restaurant town because all of this stuff has happened. Um, and uh, we attract a lot of really good people into Chicago um, from perhaps other places in the Midwest that love so much what, what we have available in Chicago that they want to come and work in Chicago. So I, I like that a lot um, that we have done that. But, but I will say, and this is very esoteric, but um, it, it, I see, I don't feel like that you can necessarily, I, I don't think you can be a really healthy person unless you um, are 
you understand the rhythms of nature and that if you're eating seasonally, um, that you are probably paying more attention to your body anyway. And I don't mean that like just in a sort of uh, cosmetic way, but I mean, just that you kind of listen to your own body because you eat the stuff that's in season. And I feel like that if we, we really want to be um, healthy, and I don't mean that in um, like calorie counting way. I mean it in, in a much broader way, the way that we talk about health of a soil, okay? The health of the soil means that there's lots of stuff going on there and it's you know, diversity really. and balance and all that sort of stuff. And I feel like that now having access to good local seasonal stuff means that we can, we're, we are we are animals and we can, understand ourselves in that way better. And I feel like that eating seasonally, if you're eating locally, you're eating seasonally, that that's actually, there's there's really great health um, uh, results from that. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, you know, that the, yeah, the benefits of focusing on that local food is, yeah, staying in rhythm with nature um, and, but also just really creating that food scene because you're right. It really was a food desert. I mean, the coast yeah. had us, had us uh, blown away in, in the mid and late eighties. Yes, and, for sure. That. And, and now we're, you know, <clears throat> Chicagoland is, is right with them. And uh, that's, uh, that's fantastic that, that you and your, your other colleagues have, have really reshaped that and, and farmers and chefs working together to make that happen. So, you know, what are you, you know, as soil health practices continue to be adopted and, and get better and better, what are, what are some of the other things that you're looking forward to in the future as, as we just keep focusing on the soil and, and regenerating the soil? Um, what are some of the things that, that you see, um, that you look forward to with, with the improved and, uh, so I look, and I look forward to the things that, that are of interest to me, obviously of interest to you becoming more the norm than being the outliers. And, you know, I still do feel like that and, and we, we've become accepted a little bit more. Okay. It's, we're not just, wackos out on the fringe anymore we're that that what we're talking about um has become a more accepted uh, way of looking at life but we're certainly not the bulk of the people out there and you know it's like i, I don't like to get into these debates it's like that, that people will say it's like oh the only way to feed the world is through conventional agriculture um, that's not true at all, really, but it is the way that it's being done right now. And because people can't imagine anything else, they um, the, and, and because the regenerative agriculture world is small, um, they say, well, that can't be scaled. Well, it can be scaled. It just won't look the way it looks right now. And um, I just had this amazing opportunity to take my first vacation in 20 months. And I got to go to France and I was in the Loire Valley um, on this writer's retreat. And it was wonderful to be able to work with these really creative people um, during our morning hours and then go out exploring in the afternoon. And we were out in the boondocks basically, but there was a small town that had a once a week market. Um, and on Tuesday mornings, we went, uh, Tuesday morning, we went to that 
that market. And I will tell you that it, it was just a regular street market, but everyone was shopping there. It's hard because like a farmer's market, you got to carry your stuff around, but everybody had a pull, like one of those little carts that you can pull. And um, everybody was talking to the people. Now, these were not farmers, but they were selling farmer stuff. And they were like, no, 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 this is the good stuff because it comes from just the next town over and it's the height of the season there you got to buy this stuff and just so it was sort of like a farmer's market except that they do this 12 months of year and it's it is already scaled to be something that is normal and yeah you can go to a grocery store and you can buy regular conventional stuff in that grocery store but people are so used to thinking about the buying the good stuff <laughs> that they will they will think of what they find in the grocery store as being second rate and we're not there in this country yeah we think of it as being like oh farmer's market let's go buy some apples that we can eat this week instead of we're going to go buy all the food that we're going to eat this week they'll think of it it's sort of like the um the everyday consumer's version of that window dressing on the plate um sort of thing and oh let's make a pasta dish and put these vegetables in it for dinner on sunday night you know it's got to be you got to think a bit about it in a much broader perspective than that and i think the only and so what i'm looking forward to is that that becomes more of the norm but we've still got a lot of building to do yeah because uh, i get to participate in our local quad city farmers market here and and that is the problem i mean people come and kind of get a treat for the week, yeah. they don't do their entire shopping there. And it's an experience. It's where they can walk their dog. They can drink a beer while they're walking around the farmer's market and shop for crafts. And it's like, yes. wait a minute. You know, you know, the purpose yeah. of this is to, to get the in-season local food that you need for that week. And uh, yes. that, how, well, how do you change that perception? How, how do we do that, Rick? By doing what we're doing. I, I don't think you can do it any other way. And everybody, um, everybody has their their thing that they can do and hopefully that we are successful at what we do and therefore other people will want to follow in our footsteps and we'll get more people doing what we're doing and that to me is the most important thing that that's what gets me up out of bed every day it's like i got to do this really well today because if i let down in any of the these things then I'm going to be losing people rather than getting people coming in. And so I think it's really important for us to be, to, to just keep doing what we're doing and, and, and to grow in it. Not like, not just be stagnant to say, no, no, we're thriving. <laughs> we're thriving. So give some encouragement to our listeners who are maybe, let's say they're 10,000 acre corn soybean farmers or they're 5,000 acre almond farmers or, you know, 3,000 acre processing tomato farmers, dairy farmers with, you know, 2,500 milking cows. How do they, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're trapped within the system doing what they're doing, you know, much like your person couldn't build their second hothouse because they're, they're having to do what they do because part of it's mindset, right? Part of it's yeah. financial set. Right. And um, paint the picture for them, help them imagine doing something a little bit different. How would you encourage them to do that? 
Well, I mean, Kilgus is a really good example of it um, in central Illinois. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the second generation coming up. So we gave uh, we, we gave a Frontera Farmer Foundation grant to a 14 and a 16 year old boy on a dairy farm because they wanted to, to, to raise goats. It started as some sort of an FFA pro project um, and then it sort of got it bigger won. and then they needed to have um, a place to, to house these goats and all of that sort of stuff. And they came to us and said, would you buy uh, goat milk from us? And I said, we actually do use goat milk in our restaurant, um, but God, it would just be, it's such a small amount. I said, what we really want is goat meat. We want good goat meat. And so then they started this goat production uh, thing and literally, honest to God, they started it at 14 and 16. Now they're both in their mid to late 20s, but um, our grant sort of got them started in all of that. And then the parents were just, uh, they were dairy farmers and selling to uh, the, through the regular um, commodity yeah. channel, channels. And so they ended up, um, because they saw that there was this new group of consumers, meaning the restaurants that were all wanting to buy this really good quality goat meat for specialty things, because we in our restaurants want to be on the cutting edge too. And so we want to be offering and new and interesting things. So we put goat on our menu as a permanent thing. Uh, Stephanie Izard here, really famous chef, opened Girl and the Goat, and then lots of other goat restaurants. And she's got goat on, on all of those menus. Um, so it was fascinating to see that the parents said there's like a market for specialty stuff so then they started bottling their milk um, as a sort of side project that they were selling to a lot of people around here. So now you can find Gilgus milk um, around here. And then they they started saying, oh, but we got to make sure that this milk is really clean that we're going to do in this way so we can sell it as this super clean product. And so then they started segregating their herds some. And, you know, so one thing led to another to another. And I will say that uh, it went from little project to they just kept growing it. And so I, I, I like to use the word thrive. Um, if you've got a project, um, you just figure out how to keep it thriving. And that may be baby steps to keep it thriving, or it may, you'll get to a place where you go, it's like, whoa, if I really want to do this, then I need to invest in something. And perhaps you can find a grant to help you invest in it because there is a lot of money out there if you know where to go for it um, for specific things and and especially when it has to do with sort of family farms and local um, there are different places you can turn to um, our foundation being one of them <laughs> so yeah. I will say that it's very um, it's a very interesting thing but I've, I've seen a number of these uh, of these kinds of changes happen um, the uh, the fellow I was talking about before in central Illinois who actually introduced us to the Kilgus boys um, is Marty Travis at Spence Farm and he he is an aggregator for a lot of the farms in his area, but um, a lot of those are corn and soybean farms that have now taken off, have now grown um, a regenerative agricultural part of what they're doing, and that's for food. <laughs> and they they started it a lot of times because they all of these kids were growing up on these farms, but they didn't know how to grow food, <laughs> and so they started teaching the kids, and they started this thing called Stewards of the Land, and it was mostly with 
with the kids, the teenage kids. And so like they would grow watermelons in a big chunk of their, their land, one, the, one of the kids would. And then somebody like us, we would say, we'll buy all the watermelons. And so that was really fun for us to have that direct connection with one of these kids that's sort of a light bulb going on with them. And so I say a lot of it is second generation stuff. And I, I think your key point with there was, is that, I mean, Kilgus's weren't looking to get into goat meat. They just, they tried yeah. something, a 4-H product, a dairy, it went to goat meat, and then it went to a bottling line for their yeah. dairy, their milk cow dairy. Uh, and little side note, I know the family, and they actually lost their contract with uh, producers who is a co-op that's supposed yeah. to be owned by the farmers. And they got rejected because they were selling their their milk into the market and they didn't want that. So yeah. they actually had to go 100% and they're doing it. They made and it happen. Doing it. You know, they, they weren't afraid of, of, of going there. So I think it's part, don't be afraid and, and try something. Right. Yeah. And, and they, we were amongst the first to use the Kilgus milk um, when they were just playing around with it saying like, well, how much could we sell, you know, but now I will say in all of the little shops around Chicago, everybody carries Kilgus milk. And I mean, they're, they're, and again, it's a lot of the second generation knowing how to get in and sell that stuff. Um, and those boys came up with a whole lot of uh, youthful enthusiasm. And so I guess one of the things that I'm saying is pay attention to the youth because they can be really idealistic and don't bat them down because sometimes what you really need is idealism to get you through. That is a great point. That is a great point. So I do have, I got one more question I have to ask you. I said, when are we doing our pasture perfect uh, plating and pairing at our farm? I, I, I got to put you on the spot right here. Oh, I think it sounds like a great thing to do. I, I'm sorry to say that I haven't had your beef. Um, and I'll take I, care of that. No problem. Please, I would love to taste it. I, um, I, I think that grass-fed um, sort of got off to a, a, a little rocky start in this country, as you are very well aware. Um, and uh, I had the opportunity a long time ago to go to Argentina, where all the, the beef is grass-fed. Yes. And they, they knew how to do it so that it just tasted like amazing. I mean, they ate a ton of beef in, in Argentina. Um, but I will say that it, it was really delicious stuff. And then I came back to, to home and, and tasted some local grass-fed beef and people didn't know quite how to finish it, I think. And so um, I, I think that we're learning and we're taking steps in the right direction with that. But grass-fed's really where we're the, what we need to have as our vision and not give up on that. We found it's really handy because the, um, the uh, chopper and the... Um, the feed wagon and the manure wagon are all on four legs with grass-fed beef. There you go. See, so you don't take anything else. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it's been an interesting learning experience. And, you know, we tried the, the beef, lamb, chicken, pork, eggs. We do do all the majors right now and uh, oh. it, it can work. So that that's pretty fascinating. Anything else we should visit about while well, we got some time yet today? Um, things coming up. No, I've, I've really covered all the things that, um, as I said before, get me out of bed every day. Um, and to me, it's really important to, um, to have that long, long range vision 
COVID was hard on the long range vision because none of us knew what was going to be around the next corner. As we always say here at our restaurant, we pivoted so many times we got dizzy and didn't know where we were going. <laughs> um, and I was really the truth. And now that um, we are experiencing this new variant and it's shutting some stuff down and we're going back to an all, all mask mandate actually in our restaurant, um, we're we're 100% vaccinated staff um, and we're very proud of that. Um, but uh, the rule in our restaurant was if you don't feel comfortable, um, not wear, you can, you don't have to wear a mask, but if you don't feel comfortable taking that mask off, by all means, wear it. And nobody asks any questions about anything. It's just you, we wanted everybody to be comfortable. And so there were some people, maybe 10% of our staff that was in masks, but um, then over the next couple of months, <laughs> more and more of our staff started putting their masks on and just not feeling comfortable with a lot of people. And so we went uh, two weeks ago to um, mask our own little mask mandate here that all of our staff had to go put their masks back on because we wanted to protect their health. And now the city of Chicago has set it and it starts tomorrow for us. So uh, we'll be back into that restriction. Um, and so we don't really know what the future is going to hold for us, but we're not giving up on the, the bigger and more and clearer vision of where we're really headed. Um, all of this can be momentary setbacks, um, but we can't lose sight of what the world is that we want to live in. And I think that you and I share uh, a pretty good vision of, of what that world looks like that we want to live in. I, I agree. The principles remain constant. And, you know, you and I as entrepreneurs, we have to um, adapt to to the, the conditions on the ground. And but, yeah, keep keep focused on what's what's right and, and everything will work out. That's right. And take take steps. It doesn't you don't have to do it all today. You can just as long as you're taking steps in the right direction. That's the thing that matters. And um, we've been at it for 34 years. And I will tell you what we were doing at the beginning is nothing like what we're doing now. But we only got there by taking putting one foot in front of the other. And we, we weren't able to do um, projects um, easily. Um, we just simply said, if we take this step, it's going to get us closer to where we want to be. And um, it, all those little steps have added up to something pretty big. And and 30 years later, you know, it, it yeah. really, you can look back and say, yep, just by doing the right step in the right direction, a little bit right. at a time and right. look at the impact that, that you and your team have had. So, right. Congratulations. I really appreciate you joining us today. And thanks for sharing with our audience and farmers and encouraging them to do different, be different, not be afraid. And uh, we really look forward to to what uh, continued impact you, the foundation and everything that you're doing is going to have on the future of farming. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing as well. What an awesome conversation. It's this type of partnerships combined with the passion and understanding of how our food is grown that really helps motivate and move us to do the next right thing. We know it's not easy, but the end result is so worth it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 
There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.